0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the last few days, one of the great narrative history projects of recent years has come to an end. The fifth and final volume of Jonathan Sumption's magisterial chronicle of the Hundred Years' War has just been published taking the story from the death of Henry V in 1422 to the eventual French victory 31 years later. In today's episode, the medieval historian and former Supreme Court judge speaks to Rob Attar about how the battle swung decisively against England and the enormous impact of France's teenage heroine, Joan of Arc.
2: Your book is subtitled Triumph and Illusion, So I'd like to begin by asking, whose was the triumph and what was the illusion?
3: Well, it was deliberately ambiguous. The English were on top at the beginning of the period covered by this volume, and they quickly declined and lost everything that they'd gained over the previous decade. They then deceived themselves into thinking that there was some way in which they could conserve at least part of what they'd conquered. But there were triumphs and illusions on the other side too. Eventually, the French did triumph. They excluded England from every part of France except Calais. But there were illusions that they had also. They felt that the English had no support in France except from traitors. And actually, the odd thing is that the English did have a lot of support from the French in areas that they ruled, particularly Normandy. Uh, it, it faded away, but it was quite powerful when the English were, were succeeding. Basically, this was a very early example of a military occupation. But the English absolutely grasped the fact that they had to win the hearts and minds of the subjects in their occupied territories in order to survive. And they did that initially by simply providing an effective government and a working system of law, something which in the previous decade had been completely missing because France was in the middle of a civil war, and neither party that civil war was really capable of supplying effective government. So the English came in and they did supply it. One of the great uh, sages on the French side once observed that if people got good and honest government, they would follow it uh, even if it were run by Muslims. And that tells you something about why so many French people did support the English until the tables turned and they started losing out. And they ceased to be able to control even their own troops, let alone protect their subjects from incursions by their enemies. So once they ceased to be able to protect their subjects, everything went pear-shaped.
2: And one thing that you alluded to there that I suppose is quite important is that when we're talking about the Hundred Years' War, France is not really united, is it? There are competing powers within France as well as the English, aren't there?
3: That's absolutely right. The English only ever succeeded in getting a a secure foothold in France when France was divided by civil war. In the 14th century, they invaded France in the 1340s and again in the 1350s with allies among the French nobility, among the rebellious French nobility. In the 15th century, the most serious civil war that France had ever experienced between the supporters of the Duke of Burgundy uh, and the supporters of the monarchy, the English got into France uh, under cover of that war. And really, the Hundred Years' War continued until in the 1350s, the French were able to suppress domestic rebellions. They first of all detached the Burgundians from the English cause in the 1430s, Then they progressively reduced the aristocracy to powerlessness. So by the beginning of the 16th century, 50 years after the departure of the English, they found that the English could never get a foothold because they could never find any domestic support. The English were never strong enough to conquer France entirely on their own.
2: Now the book begins in the aftermath of the untimely death of Henry V. How decisive a moment do you think this is in the course of the Hundred
3: Years' War? It is a decisive moment, one of a number, because Henry V was a very remarkable ruler. uh, And he was not only an extremely efficient soldier and administrator, but his rather austere, some might say rather prim, sense of justice and rectitude, was very attractive in a country that had experienced a decade of civil war and anarchy. And there's no doubt that Henry V was greatly respected, as as many of the French themselves admitted, both in the areas that they occupied and in the areas that they didn't occupy. So his death uh, was a misfortune, What turned it into a disaster was that his heir was an 11-month-old baby, incapable of ruling. Now, they were able to recover some ground because they had a a, a regent ruling the English-occupied parts of France, the Duke of Bedford, John Duke of Bedford, one of the most remarkable figures of the late Middle Ages. And the Duke of Bedford was a very rare example of a good uncle. Medieval history is full of bad uncles, but John Duke of Bedford, the king's uncle, was an outstanding patriot and a man who really devoted his entire life to the service of his infant nephew. A very, very rare phenomenon. When you think that in the previous century, John of Gaunt had used his position in the royal family uh, to uh, line his own pockets and to conquer foreign countries for himself. John, Duke of Bedford's errant brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, tried to do the same thing by acquiring a kingdom for himself uh, in what we now call the Netherlands. The Duke of Bedford had none of these conceits. He was there, as he saw it, to serve his nephew. But the Duke of Bedford died relatively young in 1435, and things were already going badly by then because of the extraordinary eruption onto the scene of Joan of Arc. They went even worse after 1435. After the Duke of Bedford's death, the French succeeded in detaching the Burgundians from the English cause, and thereafter, disaster was inevitable.
2: So as you alluded to then, there was actually a period, the first few years of your book, where the English are doing fairly well in military terms. This period perhaps isn't as well known to people in this country as Agincourt in that sort of time. Do you think we're perhaps neglecting some of the battles and sieges at this time? We
3: undoubtedly are. In the first two years after Henry V's death, the Duke of Bedford succeeded, or his generals succeeded, in winning two major battles, one at Cravant in um, northern Burgundy uh, and one at Vernay uh, in southern Normandy. They were unable to follow up successfully, the first of those victories. Its main significance was that it completely destroyed, uh, more or less for good, the Scottish army operating in France, which had for a few years made life very difficult for the English. But the really decisive moment for several years was the Battle of Verneuil in 1424, when the English defeated the largest army that so far the, the Dauphin had succeeded in assembling, And there was a very great massacre. It completely destroyed the morale of the French. It boosted the reputation of the English in the territories that they occupied. And for the next five years, until Joan of Arc's appearance, they had it not not entirely their own way, but almost.
4: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: So Joan of Arc is a woman you've mentioned in both of your last answers, and she's, of course, a pivotal figure in this story. A lot of things have been written about Joan of Arc, but I'm interested in your take on her having researched her life
3: the fashion in recent years has been, I think, to belittle the contribution that she made to the war. I think that it is absolutely fundamental. It's perfectly possible that something else might have happened to achieve what she achieved, but that must be a matter for speculation. So what did she achieve? Well, uh, she came onto the scene at a time when morale in the French the government and its army was at rock bottom. They were regularly defeated by forces, English forces much smaller than their own. Uh, they were, as they saw it, on the verge of losing the city of Orléans, which would have been a major disaster. There was even talk within the French government of abandoning large parts of eastern France uh, to the English. Now, what Joan of Arc did was to persuade the French that they could win. Napoleon once said uh, that morale is three quarters uh, of a war, only the other quarter is numbers, tactics, and the rest. And that is quite an interesting statement by a great master of the art of war, and it's very much borne out by the story of Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc did not command armies, She did not except in one important case, which I'll come to. She did not determine strategy. That was done by professional uh, soldiers who found her rather uh, interfering and a bit of a nuisance and tried to form their strategies when she was asleep or somewhere else. She didn't even fight herself. She told her judges at her trial that she had never ever killed a man. She said that she carried her standard in her hand So that she wouldn't be able to use her sword arm. So, although she wore a sword, she never drew it in anger. And those statements made at her trial are borne out by everything that we know about her role in the battles. So, what did she do? Well, she persuaded French soldiers that God was bound to give them victory because they were the virtuous side. She placed herself in the most dangerous parts of battles and sieges. She was first up the ladder uh, in one of the most dangerous operations of war, namely the storming of an enemy fortress. And because she believed so totally in her visions and her guiding saints, Joan of Arc was completely impervious to danger, absolutely unaffected by risk, and so she was perfectly happy to place herself in a position where there was a high risk of being killed. But she survived, People who saw this realized that they were in the presence of somebody rather remarkable. And after her death, 20 years after her death, there was a posthumous inquiry into her life organized by the French government. 120 witnesses who had known her at different times of her life gave evidence. The most eloquent voice was that of the, the Count of Dunois, the chief French commander. He said that before she came along, 200 Englishmen Uh, could defeat a thousand Frenchmen. Whereas afterwards, the the, the story was completely reversed. Uh, Relatively small forces of French could defeat the English. Now, that wasn't just a French point of view. Some years after Joan of Arc's death, the Duke of Bedford had to justify his stewardship uh, of the occupied parts of France to the council in England. And he said, everything had been going fine until this witch came along who somehow deprived the English of their courage and their self-confidence and boosted the self-confidence of the French uh, so that no longer were they able to achieve the kind of victories that they'd achieved at Agincourt, Verneuil and Cravant. And so you have a complete consensus on both sides of this war that Joan of Arc was a critical figure. Now, in the face of that, Uh, I am very reluctant to say that those modern historians who belittle her contribution are right. I don't think they can have been. And one thing is absolutely clear. The march on Reims to crown Charles VII in the cathedral was her strategy. All the experienced soldiers in the Dauphin's court advised against it. But by that time, she had achieved such a hold on the Dauphin's mind that she caused him to do it. And on the march through Champagne to Reims, the French had very little in the way of supplies or siege equipment. They were in no position to take defended cities by storm. Joan of Arc induced them to surrender by sheer bluff. They knew the reputation she had acquired at the siege of Orléans and at the earlier fights in the Loire Valley they believed that she was inspired by God, and they simply surrendered. And the same was true when the army reached Reims. Now, that would not have happened without her. It wouldn't have happened if the professional soldiers had had their way, as any rational person would have expected them to do. So, she did make a crucial difference in that respect. And the coronation was an absolutely seminal event in, in the war, because what it did was to confer in the popular mind a measure of legitimacy on on the Dauphin, Charles Seventh, which he hadn't had before. Although he had been proclaimed king in 1422, the Dauphin was normally referred to as the Dauphin, not just by the English, but by many French leaders and by Joan of Arc uh, herself. After the coronation, he was referred to as the king and A great majority of people, including many of the English and the French in English service, now regarded him as king uh, and the English uh, as interlopers. That was a very big psychological change. And psychology matters in war.
2: Now, your book also covers Joan's eventual capture, her trial and her execution. As someone who has worked as a judge yourself, what's your view on the processes that were undertaken for Joan?
3: It's very difficult for modern people to get inside the trial, get into the mentality of her judges, because of course she was charged with offences, which nowadays we regard as absurd and fanciful. Uh, She was charged with heresy, blasphemy, witchcraft, and so on. But you have to remember that at the time, both sides regarded her as a miracle worker. The French regarded her as having achieved miracles because God was on their side and was acting through her. The English regarded her as a miracle worker because in order to blunt the moral effect of her victories, they had to believe that she was an instrument of Satan, a person who worked miracles on behalf of the devil. So a belief in her supernatural powers was common to both sides. The trial was obviously intensely political, and that wasn't simply because she had been tried by the enemies of France. It was political because her judges, who were all French, uh, but Burgundian French, they could not possibly accept politically that her visions and her extraordinary achievements were inspired by God, because that would have meant admitting that they were in the wrong, and in, in that much more fundamental sense, the trial was wholly political. It was always clear that once she was accused of blasphemy, of misusing the name of God, she was always going to be condemned because the alternative would have been to accept that she had a God-given mission to expel the English from France. The procedures themselves were, strike most of us as extremely unfair, because they pitted a by then 19-year-old uneducated girl against trained theologians and philosophers and academics who were trying to fit her into particular categories of heretical uh, belief and behavior. But she fielded those questions uh, remarkably well, And although the trial was very unfairly conducted in the sense that it was a very unequal battle, as a matter of fact, she acquitted herself with extraordinary skill. Under inquisitorial procedure, she wasn't allowed a lawyer, so she was her own lawyer, and she turned out to be an extremely good one. It's a remarkable experience reading the transcripts of this trial, because we have an almost verbatim record of the many days of cross-examination which she endured at the hands of her hostile judges. And she understood what was going on. She would say things like, that question is irrelevant to your inquiry. Or, I already answered that five minutes ago. Or sometimes she would simply say, Move on to the next question, please. And this kind of conduct by an uneducated but very self-confident woman, however young, was extremely disconcerting to the judges. Now the judges were all French. There were a number of judges proper and a much larger number of assessors, about 120 at one time or another, and every one of them was French. And the reason for that was that we have to remember that the Burgundians were still fighting with the English. And all of these people, these these French judges and assessors, they were all people who had lived through the civil wars. And for them, they were in the position that if the French won this war, they would prove to have been on the wrong side of history. And on the wrong side, not just of history in the sense that It wasn't the side that won, on the side that would deprive them of the property that they'd taken from the advocates of the other side. It would be a disaster for them. So this was essentially the last gasp of a French civil war.
2: Now, I realise that at this point, the war still has potentially another quarter of a century to run. But would you say the tide had decisively turned?
3: I think the tide had decisively turned by the time Joan of Arc died. Probably about a year before. The reason is the English at this stage relatively securely in occupation of Normandy, but before Joan of Arc came along, they controlled more or less the whole territory north of the Loire. The result of the March on Reims was that the French were able to take control of the bridge towns over the Marne east of Paris uh, and to seize the territory north of Normandy. So for the first time in many years, the French were in control of the territory both north and south of Normandy, both north and south of the Paris area. Sooner or later, that was a situation in which the English were bound to lose. They were on the defensive, the Their enemies had the initiative. They were surrounded. They didn't have the resources to launch a major offensive which would have cleared the French from the territories that they conquered in the time of Joan of Arc. So I think that the inevitable result was that over a period of time, their territory was nibbled away until they were left with nothing.
2: So the traditional end of the war is 1453. What happened specifically in that year?
3: That was the year in which the French, having already conquered Normandy two years earlier, finally completed the conquest, or their second conquest, of Gascony. Gascony was the territory in southwestern France which the English kings had controlled since the 12th century. It was their oldest possession in France. Uh, Indeed, uh, it was actually a territory which the English held for longer than they held any of their subsequent colonies with the solitary exception of the island of Jamaica. Now, the loss of Gascony meant that with the exception of Calais in the far north, they no longer had a foothold in France. That was a major event, not only in itself, it was also a major event because it reduced the ability of the French nobility, of the the more rebellious spirits among the French nobility, to play off the English against the French crown uh, in order to maneuver for their own advantage. And that was also a big change. As I explained earlier, the English had never succeeded in getting uh, a foothold in French occupied territory in France except under cover of a French civil war. And the prospect of a French civil war really achieving much for the English, diminished, not quite to vanishing point, but almost, in the 1450s. Of course, England was just beginning its own civil war, and that really put an end to any hope of recovery.
2: And actually, coming on to that civil war, as you say, the Wars of the Roses followed hot on the heels of the Hundred Years' War. Is it fair to say that one begat the other?
3: Yes. The common cause in both cases was the incapacity of Henry VI. But rage and disappointment and a desire for scapegoats for the loss of Normandy, which was a terrible blow to English prestige, followed by the loss of Gascony, was a large element in the divisions and hostility to the principal noblemen in in the government. Although the Duke of York had hardly been involved in the loss of Normandy. He exploited it in order to discredit and ultimately defeat and kill uh, his enemies within the king's government.
2: And from that, can, can we get the sense that there was popular support in England for the Hundred Years' War, certainly while it was going well?
3: Well, there's, there was. There was popular support for it, and the popular support was very strongly based on the memory of the great victories of Cressy, Calais, and Poitiers in the 14th century, and of course, in everyone's lifetime of Agincourt and Verneuil and Cravant. So it was very difficult for the English to imagine how an army that had achieved these extraordinary things and occupied much of northern France could possibly be defeated without treachery or gross uh, incapacity. There wasn't much treachery. There was clearly gross incapacity, but the English would have lost out in any event. Their sentiments were divided among themselves for in a number of ways. The English did not like paying taxes in the 15th century any more than they like paying taxes now. They therefore persistently refused to vote the taxes that were necessary to defeat the French. It's arguable that England simply didn't have the economic capacity uh, to raise taxes on the scale that would have defeated the French. But they were never prepared uh, to even make an attempt at it. They took the view, and Parliament definitely took this view from the later years of the reign of Henry V onwards. They took the view that the conquest of France was a personal affair of of the English kings. Uh, they claimed to be kings of France. This was a French civil war. It was nothing to do with the English. There was no reason why the English should fund the conduct of a war against the French rebels to the king in his capacity as king of France. Now, that was an attitude which they maintained right up to the end of the 1420s. And there were traces of it well beyond that, because although after 1428, they did vote taxes, they did it on a very restricted scale and they never were prepared to provide the English government with the resources that would have been necessary to prevail. So they had an ambiguous attitude to the war. They didn't want to pay for it but they rejoiced in the victories and they felt humiliated by the defeats.
2: Now I suppose the people who were most affected by the Hundred Years War were those living in those battleground regions of France. What was life like for these people over those decades?
3: Well, in war zones, it was a terrible life. The physical destruction is uh, difficult to imagine, far worse than in any modern war, terrible as some modern wars have been. The problem was not just the size of the armies, which by modern standards were quite small. I mean, 20,000 men was a large army, uh, and there weren't many armies that reached that level. But each army was followed by a large number of camp followers and pages and people who were non combatants, but pretty violent all the same. In addition, in areas where the army passed through, law and order broke down completely so that large scale banditry broke out among the French population. So there was a general collapse of public order. The symptoms can be seen in the physical landscape. In the first place, there were large tracts of northern France where you couldn't see any sign of human habitation. Uh, What you saw was simply cattle and domestic animals left roaming free in areas that had been totally depopulated. You could see it in the towns and villages In the course of the 13th and 14th centuries, the towns had expanded beyond their walls and developed large suburbs. The suburbs of many large towns, most large towns in the north of France, had to be completely demolished so as not to give cover to an attacking army so that people were crammed inside the walls of towns in accommodation that was only sufficient for about a third of their number. Very large numbers of them fled these areas Uh, and uh, went to other parts of France. In addition to all of these, there were the knock-on effects. Food could not be moved by river or road, so regions, even in times of plenty, starved. And, of course, when there was a bad harvest, the position was that much worse. Undernourished people uh, were vulnerable to disease, and there were major epidemics not just in the towns but in the countryside. Uh, We know from reports of travelers in the 50 years after the English left that they found France a picture of desolation, and that remained the case until the very end of the 15th century. Uh, The English judge, Sir John Fortescue, who was forced into exile by the events in the Wars of the Roses, said that it was extraordinarily depressing traveling through northern France because they lived... In one of the richest countries in the world, and yet you could see the peasants starving in their villages. It, it was a, an appalling tragedy and very difficult to reverse, because once you abandon a territory, uh, trees and bushes grow up. Imagine trying to grub up trees and, and uh, bushes and scrub with largely wooden tools. It took years and years to re-establish fertile land as cultivable.
2: This book that you've just written is the final volume in a series that you've been working on for many decades now. Taken as a whole, why do you think that the Hundred Years' War was such an important episode in medieval history?
3: I think that its interest is that really the two principal collective activities of mankind from the origins of the species until the 19th century were religion and war. Religion and war have created the state as we know it, and the English and the French in the late Middle Ages were beginning to have governments which can be recognized as essentially the same in their objectives and often in their methods as the modern state. It's the pressure of war, increasingly war rather than religion, which creates the state, which builds it into the great tax-collecting and money-spending and aggressive institution that it remained until relatively recently, and in some parts of the world very recently indeed. That's why it's so interesting. William Pitt once observed that the principal weapon of war is money and uh, there are many people who have pointed out that war is won at least as much by administrators, by bureaucrats, uh, as it is by soldiers. And the Hundred Years' War exemplifies that. It is a complete war in the sense that we're not just looking at armies marching to and fro, we're looking at the efforts of an entire population. It wasn't a total war in the sense that the Second World War was a total war, but it was a war which engaged the whole population, even if they were not directly affected by it, at least in England.
2: And these books you've been written are often held up as paragons of narrative history writing. Do you think that this form of history is still as important today as when you began writing the series?
3: Yes. There was a period when narrative history was despised by serious academics. That period has ended. I think that there are major works of narrative history by professional academic historians which show that it has ended. But I'm not for one moment suggesting that analytical and thematic history has become less important. I think what people have realized is that to understand a society, the first building block has got to be a real deep understanding of what actually happened. And what I have tried to do in these books is to mix a narrative of what happened with an explanation of why it happened based on a study of how people lived and how they thought, how they governed, and how they, how they conducted themselves in one of the great crises of the two major countries of Western Europe. So it's not, it's not just narrative history, at least that has been my objective. A great French historian, Simeon Luce, once said that the godfathers of good history are chronology and geography. And I think that although economic, social analysis are extremely important, chronology and geography is where you have to start.
0: That was Jonathan Sumption. Triumph and Illusion, The Hundred Years' War, Volume 5, is out now, published by Faber. And you can read a written version of this interview in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany
1: Colley.